tonight is going to be a bit of a deep dive in a couple of subjects. And if you stay with me, there at the end we'll, we'll open it up and we'll see how it connects. But Hebrews is one of those books that when you study it, it feels like it's a, I don't know how many of you all have ever taken an accelerated college class. Or Typically a college course is three hours, it's you know, three times a week, and it's over 18 months. Accelerated college is four hours all at once in a short amount of time. It's like 12 months. And so Hebrews is like that. There's only 13 chapters in here, but it could be 50. There's so much here. And understanding that it is uh, the writers writing to the Hebrew Christians and to not just the Hebrew Christians, but to unbelievers as well of the Jews, we have to start appreciating the background that's in it, the culture that's there. Um, we need to explore the, what, in the, what is in the mind of the Jew as he's reading these words and when we do that, it enriches. I mean, the message is the same all throughout here. But what is beautiful about Hebrews is all the application and the things that you learn that you didn't know about the Judaism, about the Jews, about the law, about uh, things. One of the, the things that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at verse 4. Now, we're going to start here. And the lesson is to verse 14. Now, I want to just say this. We'll go as far as we can. Okay? I honestly, I don't anticipate getting out of verse 5. Uh, but I will read the entire verse 4, the 14, for context. All right, so Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he, At any time thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they, sh and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall fail not, or not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So, as we look at now chapter 1 and chapter 2, if we don't need to look at our outlines, but I can kind of summarize that it is 
basically talking about Jesus is better than the angels in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. And we see that immediately starting in verse 4. Now look at verse 4 and let's read this. Being made so much better than the angels. And then what's the next word? As he hath. Now, he makes the statement, verse 4. Jesus is better than the angels. Then that word as launches the next two chapters. Then he goes on to support that statement. How is Jesus Christ better than the angels? And why is Jesus Christ better than the angels? All right, but so before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening to come together to open up your word where we may grow and we may just get on our knees and thank you, Father, for just your love to us and your salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, as we attempt to learn and we desire your truth, Father, may you bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk about, like I said, a couple of subjects. We're going to go into some more details because it's interesting when he is making the case, the writer of Hebrews is making the case that Jesus is better, he starts with angels. Now remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the Jews. He's writing to Jewish believers and unbelievers. Why would he start with the angels? Well, let's look uh, just real briefly at what are angels. Now, again, this is not, this is, I'm not going to do an exhaustive study of what angels are tonight. Uh, we can save that for a systematic theology uh, type of lesson. But I want us to study enough about angels where we understand the background on them for the purpose of why he adds him here. Why would he add the angels here in this verse? Well, the angels, we know from the Word of God, and first of all, I want to say that, my understanding of angels, that I use the Scriptures. I don't use things outside of the Scriptures, like the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch talks about angels. There's other books that are outside of the canon of Scriptures, 66 books, that do talk about angels. But the understanding that I want to gain, I believe, is good enough that the Lord has given us enough information, and that's sufficient. So I don't need to go outside of the scope. Plus, I don't know if they're reliable. I know the Word of God is reliable. And so what does the Word of God say about angels? Well, first, they're spirit beings. They're created by God. They do not have flesh and blood, but they do have bodies. They're not constrained by the laws of nature, but they're also not omnipresent. They can't be in more than one place at one time. The fact that they were created is Psalm 148.2. It says, Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Angels can appear in human form, but never a possession of a human. They never possess a human, but they can assume a human body. Uh, Hebrews 13:2, we are told the we are warned to be careful how we treat strangers because we could be entertaining angels unawares. The appearances that the angels make in the Bible, well there's there's four different types. 
First of all, the recognizable human form. Uh, the angel that announced the virgin birth to Mary appeared to Mary in a recognizable human form in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The angels also appeared to Abraham. Uh, and when they went down to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Angels can also appear in dreams. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Do not fear to take thy wife, Mary, for what she has is the, conceived of the Holy Ghost. They also can appear in visions. Now, visions are visions without dreaming. It's not a dreaming, it's you're awake during a vision. Ezekiel had visions. Uh, with angels, and then John in Revelation had visions. Angels can also appear in a very overwhelming, impressive, and somewhat intimidating way. The angel that descended down on the tomb and rolled away the stone and sat on the stone, his countenance appeared like lightning. And if you remember, the guards who saw him, they quaked with fear. So it was an impressive, overwhelming visual that they saw. Now, angels do speak to people in the scriptures. But I, I want to say this. Angels do talk to people, but they never talk to people apart from what God has to say. Angels are messengers of God. They do the work of God. They minister to God and they minister to us. But if the, whenever an angel spoke, it was the will of God for that angel to speak. You're not going to get a rogue angel, at least a holy angel. We'll talk about that here in a minute. And you're not going to get one of God's angels speaking to you that's apart from the will of God or that's not truth. So we know that angels, they constitute uh, an order of creatures higher than man. In look, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, and he's talking about man. Look at verse 6. At the very middle of it, it says, What is man that thou art uh, mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. So he's talking about man there. So the angels are a higher form of creation that God has made, but yet... Uh, believers, when we are glorified with Christ, we will reach a status far above the angels. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. And actually, we will judge the angels. Uh, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, angels do not marry. They're not able to procreate. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, some interpret the neither are they marriage or given in marriage as an assumption that angels are genderless, but we know that angels are spirit. They have no gender, but when they take on the form of humans, then I, I don't know. Typically, we see males in the scriptures. Um, there's two classes of angels. There's the elect angels and the non-elect angels, and that's what I was talking about earlier. The elect angels are those who God has reserved and preserved unto holiness. The non-elect angels are those who the Lord had permitted to fall. And we see a third of the angels fall. And there's no redemption uh, possible for them. There's different ranks of angels. We see the archangel, Michael, highly ranked angels like Gabriel, cherubims, and seraphims. 
The cherubims uh, dealt with the throne of God. They worshiped and praised God, but yet they were used for specific tasks, like guarding the Garden of Eden. Uh, Seraphims only worship God. And we know they have six wings, two to cover their eyes, two to cover their feet, two to fly. Now, angels are immortal. They do not die, uh, Matthew chapter 22. We never see God creating more angels. So as however many angels there are, we just assume God created them all at once. Um, there's an estimated trillions from the language of the various parts of Scripture that we see multitudes, legions, thousands upon thousands and thousands, from Daniel's visions to John's visions to Ezekiel's visions to Elisha's visions. I actually uh, heard somebody say that somebody put it to task to number the angels <laughs> from the scriptures. And they couldn't do that. I mean, there's trillions of them. And, you know, I just got to thinking, man, talk about busy work. You know, somebody you know, at the office, uh, you know, if you've got nothing to do, why don't you figure out how many angels there are? I'm like, <laughs> I mean, how long is that going to take you? But he came up with trillions of angels. We were not sure. Uh, now, the purpose of the angels, they praise the Lord and do his commands, Psalm 103, 20. They minister to the believers. That's what we read in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? They also gave the law to Moses, and they will accompany Christ at his second coming. There's also evil angels. These evil spirits war against God and his saints. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Lucifer, Satan, is the chiefest of the evil angels. And Lucifer used to be a cherub. And so we know that Lucifer, or the Satan, cannot be omnipresent. He can't be in more than one place at the same time. He has the nature of the angels. He's just, he has the same nature. So why mention Jesus as being better than the angels? Why would anyone need convincing of that? To the Jew, now remember, to the Jew they had the oral law. They had the written law and the oral law. And the, or, the oral law was something called uh, Tal, the, the Talmudic writings, the rabbinic commentary on the law. So it's rabbis all writing commentary or speaking commentary that's already on the written law. And they had put a very high place to the angels, a very high honor uh, the, the Jews believed that the, the angels in the, were the highest beings next to God. They believed that God was surrounded by a host of angels, as, and God used them as instruments, and of course we know that that's true, uh, that God is surrounded by a host of angels. He uses them as instruments. They, they worship him. But the error had creeped in that many, not all, but many had taken it too far and started to worship the angels. Uh, they believed that the angels acted as God's senate or council and that God did and that God did nothing without consulting the angels. Uh, some thought that, remember the uh, passage in Genesis when it says Elohim, he says, let us make men in our image. 
A lot of them believe that he was talking about the angels and the angelic council. Uh, we know that's heresy. So they've elevated the angels higher than they should be elevated. They believe that there were groups or ranks of angels. They split all these angels into controlling elements of the universe. You had the angel of the stars, the calendar angel, the, the, the angel that controlled the seas, the frost, the dew, the rain, the snow. So they had an angel for everyone. But above all else, they exalted the angels because they believed that the angels were the mediators of the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Now, we all know that the angels were present to give Moses the law at Mount Sinai. Stephen references it, and so does Paul. Paul references it in Galatians 3.19. He says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. The law was ordained by angels, and actually Stephen uses this uh, language. He says that the law was received by the disposition of angels. So the law was received by the angels in the hand of the mediator. The angels weren't the mediator. Who was the mediator? Moses. That's who the angels gave the law to. Now we know the law was God breathed. God spoke. It was the finger of God. But it had to be physically delivered to Moses. Physically. And that is the angels. Now it is important that we understand that Paul says Moses was the mediator. The angels did participate with God in the giving of the law. But Moses was previously determined to be the mediator for the people. Moses is the mediator of the old, Jesus is the mediator of the new, not the angels. So, like I said, some, but not all, took that too far, so they worshiped the angels as mediators. This is, now hopefully you, you can start seeing where this becomes relevant to our Hebrews chapter 1 verse. Then they started worshiping, oh, the angels are the mediator. And so they started worshiping the angels. This is what John Gill said, that worshiping of angels was a practice with very early that prevailed among so-called Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, and for a long time it had continued in Phrygia and Pisidia. And actually some people credit Simon Magus for the creation or the author of this idolatry. Now also in Colossians, Paul implies that there was an issue with angel worship going on. He says in Colossians 2.18, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, verily puffed up in his fleshly mind. So he is definitely condemning these people that are, who are in Colossae. Now, we have to remember the church of Colossae that he was writing to. This is very early on in the church. So what do we know was happening very early in the church? Well, there were signs. The Holy Spirit gave him gifts that we do not have today. And remember what Peter said during the Sermon of Pentecost, how it said that the young men would uh, see visions, the old men would dream dreams. 
So it's very probable that these people, these false people, were coming into Colossae and saying, I had a vision. I, I had a dream of an angel. And he told me to do this. I mean, whether he did or not, here is somebody who is in pride coming before the church saying, hey, I have got, you know, I've been blessed above all of you all. I've seen angels. I've got this. And what happens with pride? There's a false humility that sets in. That's what Paul is condemning here. He goes, these people, they have a false humility and they're prodding into things that they don't understand if they are seeing them. But here's another thing about God's holy elect angels. They don't want to be worshipped. We see several times where, oh, John, think about John in chapter, or Revelation chapter 22, he falls down to the angel to worship him, and the angel's like, no, get up. I am man just like, you know, I am just like you. He saith unto me, see thou too, I'm thy fellow servant. Worship God. All right, so here's the summary. Now, the whole reason why we talked about the angels. The writer of Hebrews is trying to persuade that Jesus is the better mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant is better than the old because Jesus is better than the angels. So whether they believe that Moses was the mediator or the angels were the mediator, it doesn't matter in the end because Jesus is better than both. And if Jesus is better than both the angels and Moses... And then the new covenant is better than the old. But the writer must establish that Jesus is more excellent than the angels. And that is the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, to the very end of chapter 2. So we're going to look at several ways. I'm, again, I'm not sure how many we'll get to tonight, but in the 14 verses in chapter 1, he lists five ways Jesus is better than the angels. Verses 4 through 5, Jesus is better, he has a better name. Verse 4, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Verses 4 to 14, um, there's 11 verses. Guess how many verses there are that quote the Old Testament? Guess how many times the Old Testament is quoted? There's seven times the writer of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament with an argument that Jesus is better. So this very first Two words that we see here, verse 4, being made. Now this being made is one Greek word, it's genomai. And what that means is to come to be or it's something that is accomplished. Jesus was not a created being by God, like the angels were a created being by God. Some cults, and I'll bring up cults tonight, some cults will teach that Jesus was created by God or that Jesus was birthed. Being made so is also connected to the end of verse 3. Do you remember what happened at the end of verse 3? The, remember the, how much more excellent Jesus is of person? What was the very last thing in, in chapter 3? He says, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Now, if you come back up, this will help us. In verse 2, it says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And then we'll just keep reading. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, still talking about Jesus, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's talking about Jesus Christ's exaltation. He's exalted. His, his resurrection and his ascension, now he is the exalted one. And then he leaps right into verse 4, being exalted, what is he? He is being made, he has been designated so much better than the angels. The angels have always been the ministers and the messengers of God. They have never elevated to something greater than that. The angels have always been the ministers and messengers of God. They've never elevated to anything better. That's what Satan wanted to do. Remember? And so, it says, so he has been designated, he had been made to be, in verse 4, so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than thee. Now remember, we just read this, that Jesus is the heir of all things. But he has always been, his name has always been greater than the angels, even before he was exalted, even before he became the heir of all things, as verse 2 says, but has been manifested. Now we need to understand that. What Jesus has always been, he was manifested to be at his exaltation, at his resurrection and his exaltation. So, um, we see this name. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thrust of verse 4. He's better because he has a better name, a more excellent name. Now, to us, names do not have the same value as names had to them back then, unless it's a nickname. Uh, name, uh, and, you know, in the Word of God, in different cultures, a name would tie something to someone's personality their characteristic, their being, uh, who they are in expression. Um, in biblical times, God chose names that were based on the personalities. Abraham, God called Abram, Abraham. It means father of a multitude of many nations. Jacob was originally called Jacob because it means uh, caught by the heel or supplanter. And we know that when Jacob and Esau were born, his, hand, his arm came out and took Esau's heel. And so they called him Jacob. Uh, later, God called him Israel. And Israel means God may prevail, or he struggles, or God will persevere. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, and it was made manifest that this name rightfully belonged to him. Now, not just upon the discharge of his office, but his resurrection and his ascension. He is said to obtain it by inheritance, or it appeared to all to inherit it by right. Jesus, by right, is the possessor of a greater name. He is the Son of God. Uh, understanding the importance of the better name will help us go into verse 5. Verse 5 says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, 
Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and to him, and he shall be to me a son. He quotes two Old Testament scriptures right there. Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14. No single angel has ever been called a son of God. No single angel has ever been called a son of God. Now, angels and men can be called sons of God. Sons of God is the same thing as sons of God are created beings that God has created, and in some way they reflect God. But there's only one person who is called the son of God. And that's Jesus Christ, the Son. And Jesus is not the created being. So he says, uh, nor to any angel did God ever say, this day have I begotten thee, but only Jesus is called the Son in singular. Now in verse uh, 5, when it says, thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Now this is where uh, there is a whole list of things. <laughs> we can go real deep here, but verse 5 has tripped up a lot of scholars through the years. It's talking about the sonship of Christ. Now, when it says begotten there in verse 5, begotten can be used literally, the Greek word can be used literally or metaphorically. Literally, it literally means to be born, to be birthed. That's what it literally means. Metaphorically, it means that the same thing as Jesus is the begotten Son of God, that metaphorically it is that Jesus, the de eternal decrees of God, God has decreed, declared. Now, we'll get into that a little bit more. But... There is, in verse 5, this debate, and I think it was, I debated to myself rather to bring this up tonight, but I do want to bring this up because it'll help us again. It'll enrich us deeply into the fact that he's bringing up why Jesus is better than the angels. Now, there's something called, the we know, the sonship of Christ. And that's what he's talking about in verse 5. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There are two camps. There is something called the eternal sonship of Christ, and there's something called the incarnational sonship of Christ. Now, first, neither of the people who believe, you can, good men have been on both sides. Both groups believe in the pre-existence, eternal, eternality of Jesus and the Godhead. Okay? Both of those camps do. One camp says that Christ was the Son of God as a title or a name before his incarnation. That's called eternal sonship. He was never subordinate to the Father in eternity. When I say eternity, I mean eternity past before his incarnation, that Jesus was the Son in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's called eternal sonship. Now, there's another camp that believes that Jesus 
did not become the son until his incarnation. What they say, they, now they do believe in the, the Trinity. They do believe in the eternality of Christ. So what they say is that there was no distinction in persons before the incarnation. There was no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was just God. And it was in three. So Jesus did not inherit that title until he was born. And they use verse 5 as that. Uh, he says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So he, they say, oh, he wasn't given the title son until he was literally born in time. Now there's a third camp, and they're heresy. And it's the cults. They believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus, but as an inferior and as a created person. A lot of cults believe that. They're Mormons and Jehovah's Witness. I mean, they believe Jesus was a created being. They believe that he's always been, but he's always been inferior to God. Just like the angels. Jesus is just another angel uh, to these different religions. They'll use verse 5 as one of their verses. And Colossians 1.15 as one of their verses to jump through. That's, that's heresy. Um, now... What's interesting is most of you all know the name John MacArthur. He's, a, he's reformed, but uh, he's a scholar. There's some things I reject that John MacArthur believes in, but there's a, uh, when it comes to sovereignty, and there's, you know, uh, that always said, take the meat, throw away the bones. There are some things that I do uh, agree with. He used to be um, the incarnal, the incar uh, incarnational sonship, but now he has flipped. So he has flipped now to eternal sonship, that Jesus has always been the son. And I liked, I read this article that he, he, he wrote, and I liked where he said he had the eureka moment. He says the, the hang-up that he always had in sonship was he felt that uh, it would have described Jesus in an inferior role in, the etern in, in eternity. Before incarnation, he felt like, well, Jesus as son would have been inferior to God, the father, so that can't be. So the son must have come in time. So he always thought that, uh, that he would be subordinate. But he said he discovered that in this culture, and that's why I said it's rich to get into the culture, a dignitary's adult son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with the father. In this culture, and probably still today, an adult son is esteemed equal with the father. And that makes sense if you read John chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, Jesus, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus said that I am the son, and the Jews went to stone him because what he, what he effectively was saying, I'm equal with the father. So because Jesus is the son does not mean he's inferior to the father or subordinate to the father. And so that relationship can exist pre-incarnation, before he was born, because they are co-equal 
and they coexist. We know the Godhead. Now, there's a lot of things that are wrong. Now, both sides have scriptures to back both, but there's some things that are intuitively wrong with the, uh, the incarnality of God's sonship uh, because if you don't have distinct persons in eternity past, then how was Jesus conceived of the Holy Ghost if there's no God the Spirit? You know, and so it, you, there's a lot of uh, things that are kind of wrong with that. But when Jesus was called the Son of God, it's understood categorically as his title of deity. Therefore, if Jesus' sonship signifies his deity and his equality with the Father, it cannot be a title that pertains only to Jesus' incarnation. So verse 5 can't be talking about Jesus' birth. Now, it, let me restate that. It can't only be talking about Jesus' birth. It's talking about the deity. Of, it's talking about the sovereign decrees of God. I promise I'll wrap this, I'll, I'll, put, I'll tie this all together here in the end. All right. The beginning that is spoken in, that in verse 5, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That begotten, in that context, it refers to the eternal decrees of God, not a point in time. John Gill said this, Christ is the son of God, not by creation, not by adoption, not by office, but by his nature. He has always been the son of God. He is the true, proper, natural, and eternal son of God, and as such is owned and declared by Jehovah the Father in these words, today I have begotten thee. So he's always been. Now, why is this important? Because you might read this in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You could read that and say, well, wasn't he better before his exaltation? Didn't he have a better name before he was exalted? So you could read that. And that's why this is important to see this. Christ, uh, what it does say is he inherited this special name. He, yes, because eternally, eternally, Christ is the Son. And the relation, the relationship between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he's always the Son. But his exaltation declared him to be the Son. It manifested Jesus to be the Son. And so we see that. Now, think about this for a minute. In Romans chapter 8, when are we manifested to be the children of God? We are manifested to be the children of God at glorification. When we're exalted, when we're lifted up, when we're raised up. We are expressing to everybody what we already are. Um, let's turn over there just real quick. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the... Well, let's go back up. I, I kind of gave you the, the very end before I gave you the beginning. Um, Romans eight sixteen says... 
The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We know we're the children of God. But you can't see it. You can't see that I am. I just know that I am. Because that's who I am. But you can't see it on me. In verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also uh, be glorified together. So now he's talking about glorification. Verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The Holy Spirit is within us. All right? The Mount Transfiguration was Christ showing us on the outside what's happening to us on the inside. There's a glory within us, being children of God. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature, creation, they're waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. What does that mean? The revelation. It's not the creation of the sons of God. It is, look, I'm a son of God. When does that happen? When would you be able to see? When would creation be able to see me as a son of God? When this body's gone, right? That's what he goes on to say. Verse 20, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, that's what these bodies are, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And here it is. Here's the big one. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's that glory within you, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies. One day we will be manifest to be the children of God. Jesus was manifested to be the Son of God, who He already was in eternity past. When did God manifest Jesus to be the Son of God? There's several times. First was His incarnation. Yes. Uh, he was virgin born. Then, at His baptism, uh, God said, This is my Son, who I'm well pleased. His baptism was the, another one that he was manifested, the Son of God. What was, what was other times? God gave Jesus testimony through miracles, signs, and wonders. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, not one of the sons of God, plural, but the actual Son, the Messiah of God, pre-eternal, pre-existent, and God gave him witness of his claim through miracles, signs, and wonders, and he gave him at the Mount Transfiguration, what did God say? This is my beloved son. So God gave him witness. There was another manifestation of Jesus as the son of God. Then what was the next one? The resurrection. Jesus laid claim that he is the son of God. Remember what Romans 1 said, that he was born after the seed of David, after the flesh, but he was declared to be the son of God by the power of the resurrection. And finally, it was his exaltation. And that's what, all of, that's what verse 1, 2, and 3 is. Isn't it beautiful how connected this all is? That as God is exalted on the right hand of God the Father, he's exalted and he has been given that name and that all see his name. And he has claimed the right 
to be the Son of God. He has a more excellent name than the angels because his name is who he is. It's his being. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. So, if God has confirmed Jesus to be the Son, then the name of his person is greater than any angel's or of any man. His name is above every name. Therefore, okay, that's part one. Now that we understand that, we need to understand God has given him a name above every name. We saw in Philippians. And his, his declaration, this day have I begotten me, that his declaration is manifestation of who he is. He's laid claim to that perfect right of who he is. Now we know the Son of God is greater than the angels by name. Therefore, the old covenant that, meet, that was mediated by the angels to Moses is not greater than the Son of God who is the mediator of the new covenant. That's where it all ties together. Jesus, the, the new covenant is better because it has a better mediator, Jesus. And why is Jesus better? He has a better name. He has a greater name than those of the angels. Now, the remaining four points we'll get to next week. Like I said, I didn't think we were going to get to verse 6. But I'll, I'll give them to you just real quick, and then, and then we'll stop. Just give you a, a teaser, right? <laughs> get you all to come out. Well, you all do come out. What am I talking about? You all, you all here every Wednesday. Um, in verse 6, He's better than the angels because he's worshipped by the angels. In verses 7 through 9, he's better than the angels because Jesus has a better nature than the angels. In verse 10 through 13, he's better than the angels because his existence is better, his pre-existence, his eternal existence. And then last, verse 13 through 14, Jesus is better than the angels because of his kingship. And... I pray the Lord has richly blessed you. I know hopefully you could see the, uh, the beautiful overall picture. Uh, through. I know that we went through a lot of strange, it didn't seem strange, but a lot of details we went through over the night. But how amazing that it builds up Jesus Christ and his name like that. And it's just, it, we just ponder at it. We, we marvel at it. He is the Son of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Isn't that wonderful that, that he's purged our sins and he's forever sat on the right hand of God the Father and he has inherited a better name and he has, he has the heir. And let's pray. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for this study which we have seen tonight. Father, your word is, is a well. Father, and we just, we see so much depth in it and Father, just the desire we have to learn more and more. and Father, just always put that fire within our hearts to, to know more about you, to learn more about you. Father, for we know that when we desire your truth and learn your truth, that we will exalt and praise you, Father, even more and more, and that we'll be more assured in our hearts and have more peace in this life. Father, we know that where our sins are forgiven through the shed blood of your Son, Father, we, we thank you for each one here who's here tonight. We pray for their safe travel home. Father, we pray for those who could not be here tonight, Brother Ron, and pray, uh, pray for him and, and help him, Father, feel better. And 
And those whom we listed on the prayer list, those who cannot be with us, who want to be here tonight. Father, we ask you to bless them. And all things, as we leave this place, everything we say, everything we do, may we be careful, Father, to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand, please, and we'll just have...